I invite you to take your Bible this morning, uh, turn, if you will, with me to Acts chapter 4, uh, either your printed Bible or your device, whatever it is, and we'll be looking at verses 23 through 31 today. Our message is titled, Gospel Praying That Leads to Gospel Impact. And as you're turning, my thanks again to uh, Pastor Greg, such a dear friend, and uh, uh, I, I resolved this weekend, it's good to be here. Where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. So we've had good fellowship and good food, and uh, it's been a delightful time. And the prayer team, Christelle, and all of the, t- the ones who have made this possible. And it's good to be back. I think it was about a, a, a decade ago, perhaps. I didn't have any more hair then than I do now. But the fellowship is still as rich, and uh, you have just been a delight uh, to be with as we've had this time together. Uh, Pastor Greg already mentioned the card that's available in the back, and uh, there is a devotional that's available uh, and a free ebook. I think we actually got a slide on that somewhere. There it is. So just to reiterate that. And the one thing I have not mentioned, uh, for those of you who are kind of techie, we have an app that, uh, again, is free. Uh, It has a variety of things, prayer guides from the Psalms and actual audio prayers where I lead you in prayer for about 10 minutes. So on your way to work, if you want to pray together, uh, you can download that. And those, again, are prayers from the Psalms as well as reminders reminders of some of the other things we do, including every Monday morning, a Facebook live prayer time at 8 a.m. here in Mississippi, Central Time. So those may be of interest to you as well. And again, we're so grateful we can continue to cheer you on in the wonderful commitment to prayer that you have as a church and your ongoing growth in prayer uh, as a Christ follower. I like to stand in honor of God and his word. So I'm going to ask you to do that if you would, as I read from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Again, our message title, Gospel Praying That Leads to Gospel Impact. Picking verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and we'll explain that in just a moment. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predetermined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Would you pray with me one more time? And would you, as you bow, thank God once again for the power of the gospel. Uh, the living Christ in our hearts for those of us who know him. And would you pray with me that he would give to us understanding in this moment. And I pray, Lord, for myself that you would also give me unction and utterance uh, to speak in the power of your spirit, utterance to make it clear. And may your word fall onto fertile soil in the hearts of your people and bring forth fruit that will honor you, uh, that will be evidence of the transforming power of Christ and that will keep us on mission for him this day, this week, and we trust for the rest of our lives until we see him face to face. And we pray this for the sake of his gospel and the honor of his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
God has created us, and He has redeemed us, as we've been singing so beautifully about in reference to the gospel, in order to experience a life-transforming intimacy with Him so that we might live as agents of transformation. Uh, Just a reminder, that's why we're still here after we came to Christ. Uh, You've heard it so often, a lot of life would be easier in heaven once we got saved, but he kept us here as ambassadors for Christ, and out of an intimacy with him, we are demonstrating his power in our lives. It's the kind of intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden that was broken by sin, and that was atoned for through the sacrifices through the Old Testament, and was ultimately restored and satisfied in Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus spoke of that intimacy you are to know in his priestly prayer in John 17, where he said, and this is eternal life, not just this will be eternal life, but this right now is the essence of what it means to have eternal life. And notice the next line, that they may, what, know you. Now, that is not an intellectual understanding of religion. That is a personal, intimate relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul echoed that kind of passion that should resonate in all of our hearts that I may know him. And so God has created us to know him, to have this intimacy and to be transformed so that we can become agents of the gospel. But there's a problem. In fact, multiple problems. The devil opposes that kind of praying, our flesh resists it, our busyness undermines it, and our experiences can confuse it. Let me break that down. The devil opposes prayer, and by the way, I'll repeat some things from Friday night because I want everyone to hear it, but we also need to reiterate some of these things, right? But I would just tell you right now, the devil hates praying people. When we get serious about prayer, we literally pick a fight with the devil at a whole different level. Uh, We are in the forefront of the spiritual battle when we pray. But as we mentioned Friday night, we are all called to be praying menaces to the devil. Not praying mantises, but praying menaces to the devil. Uh, That is our call, to terrorize his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the gospel uh, by means of praying people. Also, our flesh resists it. I don't know about you, I often don't feel like praying. I'm apathetic. I don't have much of an appetite. Uh, As I mentioned on Friday night, I'm fiercely independent by nature, easy just to kind of go on autopilot. Uh, But the reality is we all need the Lord on a daily basis. I say it so often that prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from God. And we are an independent sort, aren't we? Our busyness undermines it. There are interruptions, there are tweets to post, they tend to ding louder during prayer time. There are Facebook likes and comments that we need to log. John Piper has said it so well. He said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that our prayerlessness was not for lack of time. (laughs) In other words, we do what we want to do, right? And there are many distractions. There are long to-do lists, texts to answer, emails to send, people to meet with, calls to return, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Hard to find time to pray. And sometimes our experiences can confuse our praying. I mentioned that I grew up in a Baptist church, and uh, yet I had an aversion to prayer. 
I told the folks on Friday night, I actually had a drug problem as a child. My, my parents drugged me to the old-fashioned midweek prayer meeting every week of my life. And uh, thank God they were praying, but that was not a life-giving experience as we spent an hour talking about all the body parts and broken down cars and lost dogs and friends with, you know, emotional problems, etc. And we threw up a 15-minute alley-oop at the end. Uh, and sometimes we just, when it comes to prayer, just repeating what we've seen without asking, is this really what we ought to be doing? Reminds me of little Susie, little eight-year-old Susie. She was helping her mom get ready one day for a bunch of guests that were coming over for dinner. And uh, it was really stressful. Mom was not in a good mood. But finally, the time came, the guests arrived, and spontaneously, mom turned to Susie. She said, Susie, would you say the prayer for the meal? And Susie said, well, mom, I, you know, I don't really pray in front of people. She said, well, just pray what you've heard me pray. She said, okay. Dear Lord, why did I invite all these people over for dinner tonight? Amen. So as silly as that is, the truth is we often do like little Susie. We just do what we've heard, and we need to pause and ask ourselves, what really should we be doing? Not to mention all the the modern-day confusion about prayer. If you Google prayer, you'll find descriptives like soaking prayer, prophetic prayer, listening prayer, sozo prayer, contemplative prayer, silent prayer, warfare prayer, healing prayer, and it goes on and on and on, everything from soup to nuts. There's a lot of nuts and some soup out there. And and the truth is, for all of us, every failure is ultimately a prayer failure. Whether it's the confusion or the resistance of our flesh or whether it's just the enemy fighting us, whatever it is, every failure is ultimately a prayer failure because prayer is the means by which we are abiding in Christ through this intimacy so that we can bear fruit and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's one thing for you to sit here this weekend, listen to this guy come in and talk about prayer, right? It's another thing to read a book on prayer. But it is an amazing thought to think of being in the presence of Jesus himself when he was here on the earth and he explicitly explained how we're supposed to pray. That's a game changer. And today we are going to see the experience of those who heard it straight from the Savior's mouth as to what we're supposed to do when it comes to this thing called prayer. So I want you to see, first of all, and just very briefly, that Jesus brought clarity with a command about prayer. He was very clear about what prayer is supposed to look like for those of us who know Christ, and it was embedded with a command. In Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, you remember uh, he talked about when you pray, and he gave two ways not to pray, uh, like the Pharisees and the hypocrites, but then he said, now I want to tell you how to pray. He did that again in Luke chapter 11, actually in direct response to the disciples saying, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He said, all right, here we go. Now, what's interesting about those two passages is that in the original language, and even when you read it in English, the words are not the same. Luke might be considered somewhat of a Cliff Notes version of the Matthew passage. But what is true is that the same pattern is there. And Jesus wasn't saying, just quote this prayer when you get together every once in a while, or just say it together at church. No, he said, I want you to experience prayer in this way. Now, I want to reiterate what I said this weekend, what's so important, is that when Jesus said, pray this way in the original language, it's called a present imperative. You say, well, what's that mean? That actually means that Jesus is saying, you must always, present tense, constantly pray this way. It's a command. So, what we're going to talk about is not just some idea about prayer. It's actually an act of obedience. 
to understand what Jesus meant by what he said so that we can experience this intimacy with God as he so clearly taught and commanded his disciples. So the question is then, if Jesus so emphatically and clearly gave instruction about how you're supposed to pray to these guys, did they get it? Right? I mean, they, you know, some of them were a fry short of a happy meal. They weren't really the sharpest knives in the drawer, okay? But the question is, did they understand what he said and did they obey him in terms of his commands related to prayer? Now, one thing we know from the book of Acts, we know that the disciples prayed, right? Uh, in the, prior to the day of Pentecost, 10 days in prayer. I've never been in a 10 day prayer meeting, have no idea what that looked like, but they prayed. Uh, we know that after the church was birthed, they gathered in prayer as a church on a regular basis. Uh, they would go up to the temple to pray. Uh, Peter's in jail. They pray. The apostles devote themselves to prayer and the word. We, we know they prayed. But here's an interesting thing that I never really pondered until just recently. How do we know how they prayed? How do we know exactly what they did when they prayed? And did it actually align with what they heard Jesus command them to do two times? Well, let's look at it today, because in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we see the context of the story, and then we actually see, catch this, the only detailed record of how the early disciples prayed. It's the only detailed account of what they did when they prayed. So, I don't know about you, but I'd like to dial into that to see how did they do? Did they listen? Did they understand? Did they experience this as Jesus had commanded it? Now, before we pick up in verse 24, some of you know the context. Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. On the way there, there's a lame man begging for alms. Uh, they said what many preachers often say, silver and gold have I none, right? But they did say, in the name of Jesus, I'll give you what I got. Uh, stand up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. Some of you know that great old hymn of the faith, right? Well, this created quite a hubbub. Peter had the opportunity to preach the gospel. The number of male converts, it says, came to be 5,000, and now the religious leaders are upset, so they arrest Peter and John. They're pretty uh, amazed by who they are. They're unlearned, ignorant men, but they'd obviously been with this Jesus. They command them not to preach or teach in the name of, the, of Christ, not to keep advancing the gospel anymore. So what do you do? They come back and they pray. And now we see the only example of what they did when they prayed. In verse 24, it says, and when they heard it, when the, the company heard them reporting this, what the, the, uh, the religious leaders had threatened them with, they lifted their voices together to God. And now, let me just point out what I spent a whole session on this weekend, and that is the corporate nature of prayer. Uh, they were all together in one place praying the entire church. And uh, as I mentioned over the weekend, when people ask, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer, my answer is yes. Which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? Uh, Albert Moeller, a great theologian, president of Southern Seminary, makes the point there is no I in the Lord's Prayer. That even the model prayer was assumed to be something we experience in community. And so they're praying in community. Again, the question is, are they going to experience this prayer? And so notice what happens in verse 24. They lift their voices together to God. Homothumadon is the word. That means a chorus of united voices. Yesterday, a lady with a Korean background asked, hey, maybe that's why we pray the way we do. We all pray out loud at the same time, right? We don't know if that's exactly what they did, but we do know with some kind of leadership from, from Peter and John, they're all verbalizing prayer with a united focus. 
So if he's giving them a prompt and they're going along, we're not sure, but clearly they're all in, they're all praying, and they're all united in what they say. So notice what it says. They lifted their voices together, God, and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and as we read earlier now, they are quoting from Psalm 2, directly from the Psalms. Now, if I could be facetious just for a moment, which is one of my gifts, but, um, you know, if this was a modern-day prayer moment, uh, and we had hit, hit the rails on something, you know, uh, the, the antagonists have really gotten in our grill, uh, we would come together and probably have a prayer meeting, and, and uh, Peter might say, hey, you know, we're having problems, we need to have a prayer meeting. Uh, he said, so my prayer request, Peter would say, is, is my anger issue. I'm really ticked off with these guys right now. You know, I whacked that dude's ear off not too long ago, and I'm kind of in the mood to do it again. So they'd write that down, pray for Peter. And John, you know, he was a little more tender. He'd say, pray for my anxiety issue here. I'm really stressed out about this. And they'd write that down. And then, you know, Martha, she's pretty aggressive. She says, pray for me. I'm going to find the best lawyer in town and sue their robes off. So they're going to write that down. And, you know, Mary, pray for me. I need wisdom to, to uh, get some protesters organized. All right, they'd write that down. And you know Thomas, what he's praying about. I'm doubting again. Pray for me, right? Now, in spite of all that, those are real issues, by the way. I'm guessing, knowing these guys, Peter might have been ticked off, and John might be anxious, and Martha might be ready to charge hell with a water pistol, or who knows what's going on. These are real emotions, and I don't want to negate that at all, but that's not where they started their prayer. Isn't that interesting? Did you notice what they did, first thing? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So, let me pause and just remind you that they began in reverence. Why? Because two times Jesus commanded them, start here. You know how the prayer starts, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So in this context, they needed to know that their Father was sovereign. This feels out of control, but He is in control. This feels a little wiry, but he is absolutely in charge. And so they worshiped a sovereign God. And if you took time, you would find that all this phraseology comes directly from Old Testament passages, numerous places. And then they said, and you created the heaven and the earth. You have a design. You haven't just wound this place up and let it go. You, you created all this. You are over all this. You are in with us in all this. And they needed to know that as they prayed. I call this, as we talked about over the weekend, scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. I think it's on the screen. Would you say that with me? Scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. You'll notice they went on to quote Psalm 2. Why? Not because God forgot what he wrote, but because they needed to base their prayer in the truth of the Scripture. And they began with worship as the Holy Spirit was leading them to pray. Uh, John Piper says it this way, where the mind is not brimming with Scripture, the heart is seldom brimming with prayer. Where the mind is not brimming with Scripture, the heart is seldom brimming with prayer. Uh, George Mueller, in his autobiography, noted that for years, he said, I tried to pray without starting in the book, and my mind would wonder. How many of you, your mind ever wonders when you're praying? Let's see. Some of your mind's wondering right now. You're not even listening. Just raise your hand. Uh, all right, throw me a bone here, okay? Yeah, but he said, but when I started in the book, 
I was able to pray in extended fashion. Again, the best way to pray is out of God's Word, and this is what they're doing. They're, they're quoting scriptural truths about God that they needed in the moment. They are declaring Him to be the sovereign creator. They're, they're quoting the Word of God. And as one of my pastor friends has pointed out, that uh, whoever, tends to, whoever starts a conversation tends to guide that conversation. And I want God to start my prayer conversation. He's always got a better idea. He's always got the truth about what I need to pray about. And prayer is just as much him sharing his heart with me as it is my sh- me sharing my heart with him. So they are led by the Spirit to this worship-based approach. And again, we say it all the time, it's the difference between seeking God's face and simply seeking his hand. Uh, say it again, it's probably in my tombstone, that if all you ever do is seek God's hand, you may miss his face. But if you seek his face, he will open his hand in power and provision. And they begin by seeking his face. Again, the question is why? Because two times Jesus told them, you must always pray starting here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They declared it to be sovereign over their situation. Reminds me of a personal story. When I was uh, in my late 20s, I was a personal assistant and associate pastor to a man named John MacArthur. Some of you would know him. One day, a bunch of us young guys were standing around, and his wife, his wife, Patricia, came up. And I don't know how we got on the topic, but she said, you know, in all these years of marriage, and it was about 25 at that point, now it's over 50, but she says, in all these years of marriage, I've never seen Johnny lose his temper. And we all wanted to crawl under the rug at that point, and we said, no way. She said, no, I never have. And I said, well, that's because you don't play basketball with him. You know, I mean, I, he's pretty competitive on the court, but she said, never. So the next the hour I was going back to the church where my office was next to his, and I went into his office and said, hey, John, I got to ask something. Patricia said, and I told him, that you, she has never seen you lose your temper. He said, she actually said that? I said, yeah. I said, well, it must be true. And I said, well, you got to explain that to me because my wife would not say that. And he paused for a moment. He said, you know, I think it's my theology. And I thought, well, that's a classic MacArthur answer. But I said, what do you mean? He said, well, anger is a control mechanism. I think I have such a high view of the sovereignty of God, there's not a whole lot I got to get angry about. You can bet I wrote that one down. Obviously, there is anger towards sin, but most of our anger, sinful anger, is trying to control someone, trying to control a situation by our own might, our own power, our own strength, and that's not what they did. They weren't going to manipulate it. They weren't going to try to control it. They declared sovereign Lord who made the heaven, the earth, sea, everything in them. They quote Psalm 2 as the basis of their faith in this moment. So for you, what does that mean? That means tomorrow morning when you pray, let God start the conversation. Open to the Scripture and ask, what does this tell me about God and His character? And before I ask for anything, I'm just going to worship Him and praise Him and declare the beauty and wonder of who He is and what He's done before I even look to His hand at all. I'm just going to be captivated by His face. Now, that's life-changing prayer. But I want you to know what happened next. They surrendered in response to God. Pick up with, if you will, I hope you have your Bible open still, verse 27. They said, for truly... It's kind of like, well, looky here, right? Uh, now it's making sense. Truly, in this city, Jerusalem, just as you had said, they did gather against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both the Jews and the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius, Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Uh, if you're accustomed to underlining verses in the Bible, I would suggest verse 28. 
Notice, notice what this meant to them in the moment. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predetermined to take place. Now, what do you think is happening in their heart? I'll just make a suggestion. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're not saying they liked what was happening. They're not saying that they, you know, have a plan of their own. They're saying, Lord, all right, it's all making sense now out of this worship and from your word. So what are we going to do? We're going to just say whatever your hand and your plan has predetermined to take place, we're in. And the next movement of that model prayer that they'd heard Jesus command them to do twice was that place of surrender and yieldedness, confession, alignment, trading in their agenda for his, their will for his, their desires for his, their kingdom for his. And how interesting that that's what they did next. Why? Because Jesus commanded them twice to pray this way. Interesting. So as you pray tomorrow, as you pray from the scriptures, as you try to do what Jesus has commanded all of us to do, uh, worship God first and then say, Lord, now what do I need to do in response to who you are? Is there a sin that I obviously need to agree with you that is wrong? Is there an area of my will I need to surrender to you? Do I need to trade in certain parts of my agenda for your agenda? Because really that's what prayer is all about. Wow, how interesting, how powerful. I often say, true of me anyway, I don't even know what to pray about until I have worshiped well and surrendered completely. You ever thought about that? That it's not just blowing into God's presence, informing him about stuff he already knows, because Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask. But it's about me aligning what I'm going to pray about with his character and his will in a spirit of worship and submission, so that now I'm actually praying in the arena of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is the point at which I'm actually praying in Jesus' name. Not just as a tack on at the end, but as an alignment of my heart with the will, the person, the character of Jesus Christ. Wow. I'm so glad we have a record of what they did, because this helps me. What did they do next? By the way, let me just add a thought here. Uh, I'm not saying that that Jesus wants to, to totally, you know, dominate everything you do in prayer with this pattern. I'm just saying in the normal course of life, this ought to be your rhythm. Because when Peter was sinking in the waves, right, he said, help. And in the original language, Jesus says, well, Peter, you've got to quote some Old Testament scriptures here first, and and you need to surrender. You know, Peter would have been dead for a long while by the time he got to that, right? So the Lord always loves to hear the expression of our hearts crying to him. But if you want to have a life-changing prayer experience that aligns with the focus of the gospel and the heart of Jesus, then we see it obviously demonstrated here. Number three, I want you to see they presented their request now. Notice they haven't asked for anything yet. But now they go to the hand. Now now they go to what they need. So look at verse 29. And now, Lord, all right, two things they really pray about. First of all, look upon their threats. And then second thing, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You remember the third movement of that prayer Jesus gave them? Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We unpacked this in detail over the weekend, but there are two two categories of prayer there. 
The first category represents our resource needs, our daily bread. What do we need in this day? What do we need in this moment from God? But the second category represents our relationships. It's been, you know, said that uh, to dwell below with the, the, you know, the people we know, that's, that's another story. But to dwell above the people we love, that'll be grace and glory, right? So sometimes just getting along with folks, trying to negotiate this marriage, trying to deal with kids, uh, trying to figure out that cantankerous boss, those are real issues we pray about and so fascinating. In the model prayer Jesus gave me, he said, there's two things you're going to now trust God for, your resource needs and your relationship needs. What do they do? Well, their resource needs is represented by this statement, Lord, look upon their threats and grant us boldness. They're basically saying, paraphrase, Lord, would you assure us that you are in this with us, you see what's going on, and you're going to give us all we need to negotiate and handle and work through this. So they present their resource needs to God. But what are the relationship needs that are so pressing? Well, uh, what has brought them to this prayer meeting to start with? It was the oppression and opposition and persecution of these religious leaders. So what do they pray about? They pray about reengaging in that relationship. How? Well, with boldness, but also with supernatural power from God. That Jesus would stretch out his hand and, and heal and do signs and wonders that are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. God in the book of Acts did these miraculous things to validate the gospel, to reassure the disciples, to capture the attention of a Jewish nation that this resurrected Jesus is real and his power is real. And so they're saying, Lord, would you give us what we need in this moment to be assured and strong? And now as we relate back to these persecutors, would you in boldness help us and in your power do things only you can do? Wow. I love that. You see, they had gospel-focused praying. They didn't, again, didn't even talk about the struggles they were having because they knew he took care of those things. As we reiterated over the weekend, he said, I'm going to clothe the lilies and I'm going to feed the birds. I'm going to take care of you. So do what? Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. And they're praying accordingly. One Southern Baptist pastor, James Walker, says it this way, and it's quite a zinger, but I think it's helpful. He says, we spend more prayer energy trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than trying to keep lost people out of hell. Maybe we should all say ouch together, right? Now, again, nothing wrong with praying for sick believers. But the reality is we are often very off task when it comes to the focus, the primary focus of our praying, and that is the work of the gospel. They are literally saying, Lord, all that matters here is you just give us the reassurance and boldness we need, and you now help us as we interact relationally with these persecutors, and you do things that are only able, you're able to do by your power. And so their focus, again, is praying big for the sake of the gospel, trusting God for all that they need, and so tomorrow when you open your Bible and you worship the, out of the Scriptures and you surrender your heart, and then you say, Lord, now what do you want me to pray about? What's on your prayer list, Holy Spirit? How do you want me to think through my needs in a different way that's rooted in the fullness of your character, your provision, and your power? And what needs are on your heart, Lord, that I wouldn't think of on my own that you want me to be aware of and really pray into and live into as well? Lastly, I want you to see verse 31. They went out in readiness. 
So yesterday in our teaching, we broke down the Lord's Prayer by these four R words, reverence, response, request, readiness. I call it upward, downward, inward, outward. That's how I remember it. We go upward in reverence, downward in surrender and response. We move inward to deal with our own needs, our resource and relationship needs. But then we got to get battle ready, right? We got to get battle ready. And that's a part of the prayer that's so obvious. Last thing Jesus told him to do was what? Lord, lead us not into temptation, but as I often say, deliver us from email, right? We just, we need deliverance from the battle. Looks uh, very different these days. But the fact is they're praying, Lord, don't let us get stuck in the evil, the temptation, the trials of the day. Give us your power to get through it all. And notice what happens in verse 31. Yes, they've got anxiety and anger and fear and confusion. Who knows what they're dealing with? But when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, what was the word of God? Were they teaching Leviticus? That might have been helpful, but I doubt it. Or were they interpreting the prophecies of Daniel? Probably not. You know what the word of God is? The word of God is what we've been singing about all morning. It was the word of the gospel. It was the declaration of the risen Christ. It was the offer of new life that could be found in him. And they're just putting it right back in the face of these religious persecutors saying, you need to hear the word of God. And that is Christ died. He was buried. He rose again and he lives today to change your life. Wow. I want you to see something that uh, some of you from the weekend know this kind of a, a beef with me. The Holy Spirit did not fill the building, okay? He filled them. Actually, there's a distinction here. He shook the building. You say, man, that's crazy. Well, I lived in California for 20 years. I've been in some prayer meetings like that where he shook the building, right? Maybe it wasn't quite a divine intervention like this. But why did he shake the building? Well, for the same reason that he did a lot of miraculous things. Cloven tongues of fire and mighty rushing wind. And, you know, people lie about their giving. They drop dead. Now, I'm glad he doesn't work like that all the time anymore, right? But he was doing these things to validate uh, the work of the gospel, to assure these disciples. As one of my professors said, you don't teach the practices of Acts, you practice the teachings, right? And every descriptive passage needs to be underscored by what we call a prescriptive passage. In other words, so here's a story, but what does the Bible actually teach, right? Well, what the Bible teaches is that on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit has no interest in filling buildings anymore. He fills people's hearts. Jesus didn't die to sanctify atmospheres or physical structures. He died to sanctify the human hearts of people. And we've been singing about it all morning. Christ where? Not Christ in the smoke vents, not Christ in the lobby, not Christ hovering over, you know, in this clouds or somewhere, not Christ coming in if we'll sing the right songs to appeal to him. No, Christ where? In me. That's the presence of the Spirit of God through the work of Christ. So he fills them. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, glad you asked. Just briefly, Ephesians 5 makes it very clear. Again, the, the teaching of Scripture uh, makes it uh, obvious to us that what that means is be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Well, I think you know. You've been taught well. That someone who is drunk with wine behaves in ways that aren't normal. They are under the control of another substance. When someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they behave in ways that aren't normal. They are supernormal, supernatural. And they are under the control, not of a substance, but of the very presence of God indwelling their life through the work of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Wow, don't we need that? 
So these are real people, angry, anxious, frustrated, fearful, reactionary. Who, who knows all that was going on in the day? But instead, they remembered that Jesus made it very clear two different times, pray like this. So they did. And I don't know about you, but I also want to do that. What does that mean for you as you get ready for battle? Well, I think that means you hide the Word of God in your heart. Uh, part of your prayer life is time in the Word. And I used to separate my Bible time in one corner, my prayer time in the other. I realize it's all one relationship. And so I would suggest to you as you're reading the Scripture, work on memorizing that verse. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken Word of God, into battle with you as a result of your time with Jesus. And obviously, that's what they did. Reverence, response, requests, and readiness. Two final observations I want to share with you, and we touched on some of these over the weekend, but they're worth uh, reiterating and underscoring. Number one, our definition in prayer will set our destination in prayer, all right? Some people, by the way, who were here last time can go like this. They've heard this twice, but your definition of prayer will set your destination in prayer. So the most common definition of prayer is that prayer is talking to God, but as Calvin Miller says, that makes God one big ear and us one big mouth, right? It's got to be more than just talking to God. It is about this relationship based on what Jesus told us to do in order to experience it. And this is the definition I shared over the weekend. I want all of you to hear, and I hope it'll help you. And it is this. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. I love that. Would you say that with me? Intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. What did the disciples just do here in Acts chapter 4? They drew to a place of intimacy with God through their worship, their surrender. They trusted Him with their needs so that what? So that they might fulfill His purposes in their life. And that becomes a game changer for all of us in prayer. I think many of us who think prayer doesn't work or we become discouraged by prayer, we're operating off of the wrong definition. But if you get your definition right, your destination will be glorious. I would suggest that to you. Finally, final observation as we wrap up, and that is this. The early Christians prayed as they did because they knew, please catch this, that the Holy Spirit, key word, was their how-to. We tend to think that he helps us with our how-to. Now, he is a helper, but he's so, so much more than that. If you understand the person where the Holy Spirit, he's everything. He's everything. I suggested yesterday, could it be that the Holy Spirit's the answer to every prayer, right? But why did they pray the way they did? Because they knew that this Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised, that they saw come in power, that now lived in them through his resurrection energy, dunamis, was everything to them. It's all they needed. But we tend to think he helps us with our how-to. So I'll illustrate. I have in my back pocket a uh, cell phone here. Some of you had yours out answering something. I don't know what you're doing. Anyway, uh, I have a cell phone here. It's got lots of apps. And I'll be honest with you, I contend to treat the Holy Spirit like an app. Truth is, He's the operating system. And in our day and age, we have too many other how-tos, don't we? I mean, why should I pray for an hour? I can Google this in five minutes and get some smart dude's answer, and I'm going to be on my merry way. And I hope the Holy Spirit will hitch his wagon to my train, because I kind of need his help, but I've really figured this one out, right? 
The truth is, the, way, the reason they prayed the way they did is they actually believed the Holy Spirit was the how-to. And that's why we pray. It is the full realization of what we've been singing, Christ in me. It is the belief that that is real and that is true, and I must engage in intimacy with him that will lead to the fulfillment of his purposes. And then as a believer, I have met my destiny on this earth, and I have not in any way dismissed the power of the cross and God's plan for me. So I don't know about you, I look at this and I want to say again in my heart, Lord, teach me to pray, teach me to pray. I know the devil fights and my flesh opposes it. My experiences tend to confuse it. You know, my schedule, all these excuses. But Lord, you want me to experience this and so I'm going to trust you to help me do it. I would just close with one final illustration. Uh, We mentioned Charles Spurgeon yesterday. Some of you would know him. The Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, He is the one preacher of whom we have the most recorded written sermons than anyone. Uh, But it was said of Charles Spurgeon that as he would walk up those 15 steps to the pulpit every day, every weekend, he would whisper under his breath, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you as you walk out of here today, if you can think of it, and I hope you will, I believe in the Holy Spirit. When you wake up tomorrow facing challenges and struggles and relational issues and financial stress, I hope you will say, I believe in the Holy Spirit and that that will be the essence of why we need to pray because indeed, He is worthy and we are needy and we believe in the power of the indwelling Spirit of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we close? So, Father, in Jesus' name and by your indwelling spirit in us through the finished work of Christ, help us to have a greater faith in what you want to do when we pray. And, Lord, help us to willingly yield to you the things that have stood in the way of what we've just read today in terms of not only what you've commanded us to experience in prayer, but how the early church took you at your word, and they did indeed experience it. Lord, I want that to be my experience. I want that to be the experience of all who've heard this message today and of this great church. And Lord, we believe that as we press into this even more, that you will enable us to be filled with the Spirit, to speak the Word of God with boldness, and to see the transformation that only comes through the gospel begin to happen in hearts and lives all around us. And Lord, you know we need that so desperately. So we surrender ourselves to you again. And we do ask that you would teach us to pray for the sake of Christ and the honor of his name. And all God's people said, amen.